0: Thunder. Dr. Frederick Mao, thank you for joining me.
1: I am delighted to be here, Albert. Thank you. Um,
0: this is this is one that I was very anxious to to record. Um I had Talk to a lot of my friends about getting to sit down with a hypnotherapist. Um, Not only just a hypnotherapist, but someone that's helped me um, in the past with mental blocks, especially with wrestling. So to be able to um, pick your brain a little bit about this whole process and how you came to find your love for hypnotherapy is um, something I'm really excited to dive into.
1: It'll be a fun conversation, Harper. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Uh, Yes, sir. So right off the bat, on your website, you have... Emotion, not information, drives behavior. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. So is that one of your, is that something that you quoted or is that, will you just explain that a little bit?
1: That is something that I coined. And um, several years ago, back in like 2012, 2013, um, I decided to write a book. And I, I really, if you look at me on psychiatric, psychological tests, I'm the wrong personality type to write a book. I'm the right personality type to enjoy having written a book, but I'm the wrong kind of guy to sit down and try to write a book, and so um, it was a bit challenging. And um, but I kind of looked at it made me look at the core of what I do, and I ended up calling the book "Emotion: The Power of Change," and I I I really came down with um, kind of a core set of principles that really guide everything I do. One is that emotion, not information, drives behavior. Um, that's a a large statement because most of our models of change and change processes are cognitive change processes that are about thinking about things differently. What I do is not that. It's not cognitive change. And then the idea that, um, uh, emotions drive behavior stories frame emotion and create meaning. And so the different stories that we tell ourselves has an impact, um, at an emotional level. It's not even something you recognize consciously. But that becomes a core principle to everything that I do.
0: Hmm. Um, that I mean, that that's the first thing I saw, and I thought that was really interesting. It's it's very simple, but it's very you know it, it's a right on the uh, it's a nail right on the head. So, um, I guess to 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 get in for for everyone that's um, listening, would you kind of explain what hypnotherapy and hypnosis is? I think there is this maybe the um, stereotypical idea of that hypnosis is you know dangling a, a, a clock in front of someone's um, face and just like snapping your fingers and having them you know go unconscious or something like that um, I, I, can,
1: I, I can swing a watch with the best of them and I can <laughs> I can definitely do rapid inductions where someone drops down very quickly um, in like a few seconds and, right. and those are fun um, mostly for parties I don't really have a there is some um, therapeutic usage for that which we can talk about later if you want to. But I, I guess if you want me to take like a, like two minutes here and give you the neurology of it, I would, would love that, that be useful? Okay, so the, um, um, the little voice in your head that you think of as you is called your executive function. The C of the executive function is your frontal lobe, which is that big walnut-looking part of your brain up top. Mm-hmm. When you go to sleep at night, that part of your brain, for all intents and purposes, shuts off. It's completely natural, normal. Um, What you see on neuroimaging is the electrical activity of the frontal significantly decreases. um, Cerebral blood flow to that region significantly decreases, consistent with self-reports of, I was asleep. Your limbic system is really emotional processing. So um, limbic is stress, anxiety, fight or flight. It's the part of you in charge of your survival and keeping you safe. It's definitely driving things like um, anxiety and traumatic responses. It's midbrain, so it's a distinct region of the brain. If you drew a line between your ears and straight back from your eyes, where that crosses is pretty much where all this sits. So that emotional limbic system processing is always on, always operating, always keeping you safe, even when you're asleep. That stuff never shuts down. If you think about the sand on the beach um, and then the tide is in, if the tide is like that cognitive processing, that upper part of the brain, as you relax, as the tide goes out, it exposes more of the beach. So okay. as you relax, as cognitive processing goes down, that emotional processing becomes more exposed, more ascendant. And so if I can work with you in a more relaxed state, it lets me work with you more directly the level of emotion. Since emotion is what's driving everything, it's just a really good, really fast process for change. So the, the idea of hypnosis is essentially frontal lobe disengagement um, greater engagement by the emotional processing parts of the brain, the limbic system. um, And then using that therapeutically to create change, which involves knowing how to use suggestive language in order to create emotional change. So that's a pretty quick neurological definition. Was that helpful? Very
0: much so. Um, I remember when I did some of my sessions with you, you explaining, um, the whole the whole process where your executive function I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um and I was it I it makes sense now looking back on it when I would be set up for um a session and, you know, it'd be in a very relaxed um state where I got to close my eyes and have some headphones on. So um you know, it makes a lot more sense. I think um,
1: the sessions are kind of fun actually. I mean most people don't think of therapy as fun, but I I think I mean, we do deal with some significant emotions here, um, and some, you know, some pretty different difficult things, but I, I, think, I think it's a process most people actually kind of enjoy. So that's, that's lovely. I would
0: absolutely agree. Um, I would absolutely agree. It's, it, I mean, I think with anyone that comes in to quote unquote therapy, there's, you know, this idea that, um, it may be overwhelming or, you know, it's basically answering, you know, something that you don't have an a grasp on, um, as a patient. So when I came in, um, I think my first session was in, I don't even know what summer, but it, I was going to my junior year in high school. And, um, you know, it was, it was something that I was, I was a little nervous about, but I was actually very excited, um, because I'd heard great things and, um, it, it was just, I guess, uh, I was stepping out of my comfort zone. So
1: Well, thank you, and it was a privilege to work with you. By the way, I will just mention here that like I, my work with clients is always confidential, so it's fine for you to decide to tell everyone we did this. I would never tell everyone that we <laughs> did this. So, um, so there you go. Just I understand.
0: No, right no, no I'm, I'm very... Go, yes. I'm, yep, I understand that. I understand. No, I'm, I'm happy to to share um, my path. I actually may touch on it later about how you've helped me. Um, sure. um, so there are... Before we continue, um, there are a lot of different types of therapy. There's hypnotherapy. How does hypnotherapy, I know you explained what hypnosis is, but how did you, um, how does it sort of differ from the different types of, and I may sound ignorant, excuse me. Um, the, there are many different types of therapy. How did you land on hypnotherapy um, to study? And what, what about those qualities of hypnotherapy, like drew you other than other types of therapy? me assuming that you were going, you were looking into other types of therapy. Well,
1: I mean, people a lot of times ask me how I became a hypnotist, and my standard answer is I lost a card game with the devil. Um, So, I mean, you know. um, Basically, um, I uh, I ended up getting laid off from my corporate job. They laid off 200 people and closed the place here down. It definitely was not my fault. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was doing some consulting work, and I I was fairly successful with that. I had several clients. and, How long ago was this? Oh, two thousand, two thousand, probably. Okay. Um, so I was doing consulting work and looking for honest labor and um, doing things like going to the chamber of commerce to you know meet people and network and 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 drum up some consulting business. And I ran into a guy that owned a hypnosis shop, and he was like, "Well, you should come work with me; it'd be great." And I'm like, "That is completely crazy." Um, but I thought it would be fun at parties, which it totally is. So, Uh, you know, doing consulting work is, you're not going to fill all your hours with that. So I decided I would go work for him a little bit and just learn this skill kind of as a lark. And, uh, and as I started working with him, I, I saw how powerful it was to help people create change. Um, I, uh, I really just fell in love with the process. I had some significant, um, pain issues myself back then with a herniated disc in my back and the um, hypnotic pain relief actually is one of my passions now. I'm involved in a research study with it and that kind of thing. Um, So, uh, like that tremendously helped me and I just at one point I decided, well, okay, this is what I'm doing. And so, for all intents and purposes, I ended up kind of buying the practice. It's not exactly how that went but, but that's sort of the easiest way to summarize it. And um, and I was essentially doing life coaching. So I was working with people as a hypnotist and working on things like weight loss and stopping smoking and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. People kept coming to me for more and more difficult um, problems. And I decided that I just needed to up my game in order to serve my clients better. So I decided to go out and get a therapist license, which at that point involved getting a, a second master's degree. I already had a doctorate. I probably could have grandfathered in and cajoled in some things that I had done previously and, and met the requirements, but it was easier just to pick up the degree. Right. And so it's a crazy story. Like I ended up, you know, having this practice, getting this degree. You're right. There are about 400 approaches to psychotherapy. That's ballpark, but it's not wrong. Wow. Most of the ones that you're going to run into are cognitive processes that are about um, uh, managing things differently, like okay. like handling things differently at a conscious level, um, this is not that. This is a process that really is about creating experience, like creating, the instead of how to manage the problem better, this is a process that's about the problem not happening. It moves very quickly. My normal time with a client is usually about successions. And so your question of, well, how did you pick hypnotherapy? It, I kind of came to the party as a hypnotist. And then, you know, through my training and stuff, I had to learn all these other methods of therapy that, um, I mean, I'm not gonna say bad things about them, like cognitive behavioral therapy has a lot of empirical verification stuff to it. It's just way more clunky. Um, it's, it doesn't produce as good a result and it just takes a lot longer. And so I could do that, but why would I? And so there you go. I don't know if that answers your question, but it was a long rambling So there. you go. Um,
0: no, it absolutely does. I thought it was interesting can you touch on, you mentioned uh, a couple of times, it, it was a cool party trick. So you would go to parties and, or is that just, a, are you using that as like a, just a phrase?
1: No, no, not at all. I mean, my initial idea with hypnosis was, well, this will be fun to do it at parties. And I remember having some interest in it, like as a lark, even before I ran into all this. Um, and how it works. It was always sort of an intriguing thing around the edges, but never really anything I looked into or or had any kind of passion about. Um, But there's a process in hypnosis called rapid induction. And basically you're dropping someone into a hypnotic state very quickly, like two seconds, and it's just, and the person just goes from being up to being down. And it really is kind of interesting to look at. So that is not the kind of hypnosis that I was learning Mm -hmm. um, when I started out, but there were hypnotists and stuff doing it. And so as I was progressing in my training, I thought, I really want to do that. Like, I want to get that down. And there were different people that um, I I attempted to teach it to me, and I guess I was a slow learner or something. Um, But I started watching videos on YouTube and found a guy that – that I now know, like I didn't know him at the time, a station just named John Serbone, um, who had a video on um, speed trance, is what he called it, and um, uh, I I so I ordered his DVDs and I, I watched like the first one and I realized that his sorry John, his explanation for how it operated was just BS, but the but the technique that he was demonstrating was really solid. Like he it was really good and I'm like I can do that. But this is a skill, and so the only way you can develop a skill is to um, uh, to go and do it. So um, I've always been involved in like the art community here in Columbia. Um, I'm not an artist because I don't have skill or talent but you know I'm, I'm a good patron of the art so i go to different openings and stuff and when i would introduce myself to people you're just like around in a, in a gathering or a party or an art opening or whatever as a hypnotist people would be like do me do me do me which is great and so i would just do like this rapid hypnosis with people um out in public just to develop the skill and uh yeah it, it really was a lot of fun like you know so you, there you go that's
0: the way that's fun so you would you would just there's a, there's a process to taking someone from just being, what are, are they not conscious when you, how does that work? Are they not conscious when you, um, snap your fingers or is it just real quick? I, I'm just, I'm just a little confused on the process of what you see on YouTube videos when people are like, Oh, that I could, that, that would never happen to me. Or someone says a lot of things and then snaps their fingers and then they drop for two seconds
1: it totally works i mean no no induction is the process of getting someone into a relaxed state and there are a lot of different ways to do them Um, that's a rapid induction and um, it's not going to work with everybody like everyone's not going to be attuned to it but um, but it's going to work with a lot of people and it works very very well and there definitely is a, a process to it it looks really impressive because the actual induction part of it is you know, like very fast, the setup to it, which is going to take two or three minutes on the front end, doesn't really look like you're doing a hypnosis process, but you're you're framing a lot of things and kind of setting it up. But I remember one time being over at a, a venue here in town um, where they were having, like there was a, a rock band playing and there were artists exhibiting, like visual artists and, and all this stuff, and it was a big party for the community. Um, and there was a friend of mine there, and she was like, My feet are really hurting. And I'm like, Well, you want me to get them to stop? And she's like, What? And I'm like, Well, I can, yeah, I can get your feet to stop hurting because she's wearing pumps. And hey. and and she's like, Really? I'm like, Yeah. So we're standing there. We're like, I don't know, like 20 feet from this band playing. You barely hear each other. And like, I just, and, and sleep. And she just, and didn't fall over because I gave her, suggestions to be steady on her feet. Cause I don't like having to catch people. Right. You gotta be ready to catch people. Oh, that happens. Totally <laughs> like, yeah, you gotta be ready to grab them. But she's, and I gave her a couple of suggestions and you know, then her feet weren't hurting. And they were like, I don't know, 20 people that wanted me to do stuff with them cause they saw this. So it, yeah, it's fun at parties. Wow. <laughs> I,
0: I wish I was there to, um, to see that. I, I think, I, I think I used to be one of those people that would see those videos and wonder if that would happen to me. Um, If you're
1: faking your stage show, you're working too hard. Okay. It's too easy to actually do it (laughs) to, like, fake your stage show. Right. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, So, are there any common, like, misconceptions or myths about hypnotherapy that um, the average person may think that you would want to address? I'm just trying to think. Like I mentioned before, the stereotypical, you know, um, that it's the whatever it's called, the stereotypical waving a clock in someone's face. And I know that's an actual process and how it works, but I didn't know if um, there were any Well, the swinging watch thing
1: is actually very clever because if if you've ever had someone swing a watch or a pendulum right in front of your face, you get the pendulum maybe like an inch from your eyes, an inch, an inch and a half, and it's swinging basically the width of your eyes and your tiny muscles of your eyes, if you're following that, you're not turning your head, you're just following that with your eyes. And you're not going to hurt someone, like there's no damage that happens, but that's going to fatigue your eye muscles very quickly because your eyes are not designed to move like that much, that close. Like you're just wearing the muscles out. And so when you're swinging a watch in front of someone's eyes and you're like, your eyelids are getting heavy. Well, they really are. (laughs) You know Their muscles are like, so there's a little cheat to that one, which is why it's kind of boilerplate and hackneyed. Um, and, you know, it, it does work actually really well, but, you know, there you go. Um, so, yeah, I guess the big myth would probably be that hypnosis is some kind of mind control. And I, I think that would be the big one to go out and deal with because in actuality, it is precisely the opposite. Um, you're working with someone's limbic system, so it's the part of you in charge of your survival and keeping you safe. This is the part of you that's on it to take care of you. And so... I'm going to you, and you're giving me permission to work with that part of you that really is in charge of, like, is, is the guardian, is like the gatekeeper. And the idea that you're going to take, that I'm going to take that part of you in some direction that you don't want to go, just doesn't even track. It, because the, the emotional part of you, like, it's all about trust and permission. And as long as we're doing whatever it is that, that you said, hey, let's work on this, it's all going to go okay. If I start trying to go the other way with it, it it's not going to work. I mean, the person's going to get angry and break the state and it's going to be a problem. Right. Um but the other part to realize is you know, my goals are different with different clients because people come in with different things they're working on. But as a therapist, the goal is always to help someone be more mentally healthy. And so the question becomes, well what is that? And the best definition I know of for mental health is self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the belief that I can take meaningful action that will determine what my life will be like, Um, that the things I do are more important for what my life will be like than are, you know, the system, the man, fate, luck, whatever, what other people are doing, all this other stuff. I can take meaningful action. The opposite of self-efficacy is learned helplessness. I've got a picture that's an internet meme that I'll show people that is a a mule tied to like a plastic lawn chair Mm -hmm. and the chair weighs like eight pounds and the mule like pulls plows so if the mule started walking he would not feel the chair and but the mule believes he's tied down because ever since he was a little mule if he was tied to something he couldn't go anywhere so it's he's learned to be helpless learned helplessness um the goal of abuse by the way is always to create learned helplessness um so when you look at someone who's abusive that is the goal. They may not cognitively frame it that way, but that's always the, the output. So the goal of mental health is to create more efficacy, more belief in myself that I can take meaningful action. This is a process that works with your creativity and is designed to spur your creativity. I don't have solutions for the things in my clients' lives. I, I really don't. I, I don't have magic answers where I can tell them what to do. What I have is a process that's designed to create, to engage their creativity so that they see a path forward. And I have clients that come up with solutions that are beautiful, that make total sense for them, that I would never have thought of. So rather than this being some kind of mind control, this is really a process that's about engaging your creativity, engage, engaging your sense of self, and your ability to see paths forward and, and to see solutions. So it, it's interesting that that one is kind of the the, the stereotype is the polar opposite of what actually mm. happens with the process.
0: Very well said. Um, on that note, you were talking about um, how, I guess, so all clients come in with fairly um, unique and personal um, you know, problems that they want to address. Um, for me, it was my mental block in wrestling, and we tackled that and um, you know, very effectively. Um, I guess you tackled that very effectively.
1: Well, you tackle it. It's a joint effort, and that's not a cliche. Like I just said, it's it's engaging your creativity. Yeah. And this is a great process for athletes. I mean, I I love getting to work with athletes, and I've worked with athletes um, at all different levels: contenders for the Olympic team, people that play play professionally, um, a lot of college athletes, high school athletes, dancers. Because like, if you're doing dance, that's really an athletic. Um, engagement. Uh, Mostly what I treat are, you know, trauma, anxiety, depression, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. unipolar depression. But yeah, it's, it's a great process for athletics.
0: And that's one of the things that made me not as um, nervous coming in the first time um, to hear that you'd worked with a lot of athletes that there are even professional um, players out there that are struggling with roughly the same uh, sort of issues I did were, um, in one way or another, they're at the top of their game, but they're also just, uh, pretty similar to the average person in the fact that they have mental blocks, um, mm-hmm. too. So that was pretty interesting. Um, I wanted to ask about your whole process in, um, working with a client, n- n- no specifics, of course, but we, you, you and I did, we had three total sessions and the first session was just me explaining what was going on and you asking questions, listening and writing down, um, a lot of notes. Um, and you can pull from my experience, but how, how have you learned, um, to, I just want to know about the whole process of you're, you're listening and you're, you're writing down notes and then you have about, I don't know when the next time we would meet is, but you were going home and are you studying what, what you, Oh, I just would like you to speak about that.
1: Yeah. And if you recall in our first session, we, we actually did a hypnosis session. So we had a conversation, um, probably the maybe 20 minutes of talking. And then we did about probably about 20 minutes of, uh, uh, with the wrestling, we did a visualization. Um, and basically I'm (laughs) not a wrestler. And so you gave me a lot of language that that framed for me you knew how things needed to be better you were just having difficulty getting there and so i asked you questions that were designed to give me your language your emotional framing and that allowed me to construct um, a metaphor uh, uh, something suggestive that was designed to engage your creativity so you were able to fill it in and and things went better with the wrestling. Um, I, I described hypnosis neurologically a moment ago. Another definition for it would be: um, hypnosis is the ability to use language in emotionally suggestive ways to help people create positive changes. And and that skill of being able to um, to use language in ways that helps people is is like the key thing. It's not suggestions like I tell you something like, well, why don't you grab a sandwich for lunch? Might be a suggestion, but that's not a hypnotic suggestion. That's not how that's not how hypnotic language operates. So understanding how hypnotic language operates is, is kind of a key thing. The questions that I, I ask at the beginning um, really are designed to give me the information I need in order to craft the process. Um, the one I usually start with, and I, we may not have started with this one with you because we were working on athletics, so it's a little bit different. Um, but the one I usually start with is a version of the miracle question, which is a, a technique from solution-focused brief therapy. Um, Steve DeShazer is the guy that, that created this. DeShazer's version is a little bit different. I mean, you can find it on Wikipedia. Um, but the, uh, my version, and this is where I usually start with a client, I'd like to invite you to suppose that we have a great session today and things go really well. And we get done and you head out and, you know, maybe a little rainy this afternoon, but it'll be awesome. Eventually tonight you go home, you go to bed, you do go to sleep. And while you're asleep, a miracle happens and everything that brought you here today gets magically fixed. But you don't know that it's magically fixed because it happened while you were asleep. What would you notice tomorrow, tomorrow night, the next day? What would you notice tomorrow that would be different? that would let you know things have changed. And then I just start writing down what the person is saying. I don't have to like capture every word, but I'm capturing all their, their adjectives, their key emotional phrases, anything they're describing. Um, and then that becomes the goal of therapy, like the answer to that question, which we'll probably spend about 20 minutes all told on that question. That becomes the goal of therapy and, it, and the way to assess where we are when we're getting ready to terminate. And um, I'll use that language throughout the processes that we do for as long as I work with the person. We work together for about three sessions. Um, My normal time with a client when I'm dealing with like a a, a mental health issue is probably about six sessions, Um, but it moves very quickly. And so the questions are designed to give me information. Most approaches to therapy are problem-focused approaches. They're really concerned with how things went off the rails, what went wrong. They spend a lot of time on the past and taking history and trying to figure out what what how things are off off kilter this is a solution focused approach where are you now where do you want to be how do you get from here to there so everything i'm doing as far as the questions at the beginning are designed to frame things forward positively for the client mm-hmm. and give me the information i need in order to do the you know the intervention to help the person out um.
0: I that's something that I always thought was really cool um thinking back to it that was kind of more the magic I guess um when I came in for sessions is how did we how did you take um information that I gave in 20 minutes and it may have not been that um well elaborated or articulated at all since I was you know I it was it was my first time but the fact that you were able to turn that into something um and then we were, we were able to record some tapes um, that worked, were pretty yeah. impressive.
1: You always say what you need to say. I mean, my my client doesn't have to be an expert. I'm an expert in what I do, and so my client doesn't have to be an expert. You just gotta tell me, yeah. I just need language from you. I remember years ago, I had a guy who came in who was a professional trap shooter. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And he was wondering if I could help him, and I went, well, what is that? And he, it's clay pigeons, you know, pull, boom, you shoot the clay pigeon and i'm like yeah i can i can help you with that and he goes well how can you help me with that if you didn't know what it was and i said well you do this professionally right and he goes yeah and i said well so you really are an expert on trap shooting and he's like yep and i went i'm an expert on hypnosis between the two of us we can get this done and he's like all right i'm here i'll do a thing and it worked out great for the guy like it went really really well and um I do have permission from clients to use stories in an anonymous way, so I, I can talk about some client tales. I actually um, would
0: love to to hear, um, if, if you'd be willing, I wanted to hear some, I guess, success stories or just interesting um, clients that you came across. Um, like,
1: Well, that was a good one. Um, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the rapid inductions where you're like, you know, snap the fingers and the person drops down into a relaxed state. Um, I find that that approach actually, which I very rarely use with clients, usually you kind of lean back and I just, I'm really boring. So people nod off when I talk to them, um, your podcast listeners have already realized that. Um, (laughs) So I just kind of talk you down to a nice relaxed state, but that, that rapid induction and then, um, you do some things, you can do some things with that, like catalepsy where you like make someone's arm rigid or not, they try to move their arm and they can't or, they try to open their eyes and they can't, or you know that kind of thing. The neurology of that's really interesting because the the holding my arm stiff and rigid purposefully looks totally different on neuroimaging than a hypnotic suggestion for for paralysis for catalepsy. Completely different parts of the brain involved. Um, but I had a, a a young woman who came in. Um, a 16-year-old, otherwise healthy, could not talk for six months. She lost the ability to speak and um, we couldn't, you know, I, I she had done some different therapies and stuff, wasn't able to get anywhere, there was there, nothing medically wrong. So the diagnosis was functional neurological disorder, which is... Um, there's a physical effect, like a medical symptom, but there's no medical cause for it. Like the doctors ruled out, the physicians ruled out um, that there's a problem. And I found with that kind of thing, where your body is actually responding in ways that feel out of control, like she would try to talk and her throat muscles would just clench down. and I, yeah, I got her talking within a single session, like, I, you know, rapid induction, take her down, did like some things like the arm catalepsy with her arm rigid, she's trying to move in and she can't, and then just took her up and down with the hypnosis process, which is called fractionation, and it kind of takes you to a deeper state, and um, by the end of it, I was just throwing very rapid suggestions to her that, you know, well, you can say this or that, and she would say these things, and... Um, yeah, um, near the end of the session, she was talking, I, you know, opened the door and waved her, her father to come in, because he was out in the waiting room, and he was, I was like, you know, held my my, my finger up to my, my mouth like shh, and uh, he came in and sat down, and I was doing the stuff with her, and um, he was almost in tears, just astounded that she was speaking, and then while she was in the middle of talking, I, I emerged her from the, the hypnosis. I woke her up and she kind of choked a little bit right at that moment because she was talking, but then she realized she could talk and then she was just, oh, and it was great. And so, yeah, so that kind of thing, that would be, a, a, I guess, a nice success story, but also an example of rapid induction sort of making sense in a therapy context.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. Um, sorry. I'm looking for um kind of the next topic. So um I guess I this would be a good time for me to talk about um my my um my obsession. So I came in a couple years ago. Um I guess it was almost 4 years ago. Yeah, I was going into my junior year. I'm going into my junior year in college now. So um and I had been having just mental blocks with wrestling. Um I think when I think back to when I wrestled in eighth grade and freshman year, I get, I, I would get nervous and you, you would get that, those butterflies in your stomach like most people do, um, but I never let that control the way I wrestled. It would just be a feeling and then I would just go wrestle. And When I think back to those matches um, years and years ago, I don't ever remember the, the actual match happening. I just remember right before and right after. Um, and until about, yeah, until about, uh, my sophomore and junior year, um, everything was, was on pace. And I just remember that I had, I, I would go out, I would wrestle, I would come back. Um, and then I don't, I don't know what it was, but every, once I hit my, um, sophomore and in, in, in junior year, um, every single match that I approached, um, I would begin to overthink, you know, does this guy look a lot stronger than me? Does he look more athletic? And I basically would already lose the match right before I stepped on the mat. Um, And it was just a whole process of my brain beating myself before um, I even had a chance. Um, I I knew that I had conditioned harder. I knew that I had... Um, done workouts and um, extra time with, with technique and everything I could on paper, um, I should be the better opponent. But um, I would just tell myself there's no reason that you deserve to wrestle this wrestle this person, that you deserve to stand across from this person. Um, you well, don't have a chance. that's an
1: example of a story-driving behavior. You know, the story, the self-story there is, I don't deserve this. And there's a part of you that believes that. And even though you have greater ability, you end up not not doing it. And I remember my wife's an Olympics fiend. And every time the Olympics are on, like, it's the only time we watch sports. But we watch all of them for, like, you know, the whole time. And I remember several years ago, we were watching um, Winter Olympics. And there was the gold medal round for women's figure skating. And um, I, I forget the athlete, but she skated out onto the ice. And I looked over at my wife, and I went, she's going to fall. And, and my wife's like, what? I'm like, just watch. And... Um, And she did. And my wife's like, how did you know that? And I was like, I saw her face when she skated out. She was not there. Like, she wasn't confident. And and she's like, how could you tell? I'm like, because I work with people all the time on this kind of thing. And it was obvious. And like, so this woman's in the gold medal round of the Olympics for her sport. Like, she skated that routine how many thousands of times? and she's totally got it, like she can completely do this, but it did not, um, it didn't work because at that moment, emotionally, she wasn't feeling it. So your story is, um, I think it's interesting because whenever someone comes in from a counseling, for a counseling issue, there's always ambivalence. You're feeling two things at the same time on the one hand and on the other hand. So on the one hand, you know you've got the conditioning and the ability and you have really worked on this, And on the other hand, there's a part of you that feels like, well, I can't go beat this guy. Like, he looks bigger than me or whatever. Or I don't deserve this or whatever. And so we have things. The issue is always um, something that feels right emotionally, doesn't make sense cognitively. And these things are cross-purposes to each other. And you can force yourself to do things you're not emotionally comfortable with for short periods of time and you're describing doing that, like you would make yourself go out and do it. But it's very difficult to maintain that over time because that emotional limbic system processing, it's like a giant river. It's where all the power is. Um, And so eventually that reasserts itself. And remember, that's the part of you that's trying to keep you safe. And so there's a part of you that's going, (laughs) <laughs> this guy is going to beat the pants off me, or why? Right. Like, this is going to really hurt, and and so you know that that emotional part um, ends up having ascendancy, and so you can push through sometimes for periods of time for little things, but it becomes harder and harder over time, which is what I think you you experience. Mm-hmm. There's also a sense when you think about limbic system processing. If if we've got a moment here, I'll tell a little story that'll kind of set this Please up. Please do. Um, my uh, when my son um, when my son was uh, newborn, like he was in one of the kind of baby carriages where they lay down, not even in a stroller where you sit up. We were going to have. Um, meet a bunch of friends at a local park for a picnic and it was one of these situations where you gotta um stake out a picnic table early mm-hmm. and you know to get it. And so I wasn't really good at putting together picnic lunches and so I, I ended up taking my son and heading over on over to the park while my wife was putting together stuff and my job was, you know, show up at the park, stake out the table. And so it's a beautiful day. Dogs run around. People playing frisbee. Folks are jogging. There's all this kind of stuff going on. Big oak trees and the wind and music in the background and all this. And I was sitting on the end of the picnic table, not down, not on one of the benches. And uh, and my son was in a baby carriage in front of me. And you know all this lovely stuff is happening. And then the next thing I remember, I was on the ground. And. A woman that I don't know was leaning over me asking me if I was okay and did we need to call an ambulance. And I realized at that moment that I didn't know where my son was. And then I heard my son screaming and I heard and I saw the baby carriage turned over. And then I realized that there was another woman that I also didn't know that was holding my son and comforting him. And what I don't remember because of what happened, but what the lovely people that were around told me was that a large limb broke off the oak tree over our heads and I leaped out over the baby carriage and the limb hit me across the back of the neck and shoulders um, and I just knocked the carriage everywhere and you know, my kid out on the ground and stuff and he's totally fine. He's in the doctoral program for math now in Texas, so. There you go. Right. I would like to tell you that I was super brave and I protected my son that would actually be a lie remember your limbic system is in charge of your survival and keeping you safe and um, that's not actually true it's really in charge of your gene survival and keeping you safe and there's a part of you that knows that it's more important for your kid to survive than you limbic processing is fast and vast it's at least 300 milliseconds faster than cognitive processing that's like a third of a second it's enough time to feel and so your limbic is constantly monitoring all sensory input threat or non-threat and so you're not able to process that consciously fast enough and so I'm sitting there on the table there's you know people are jogging music's playing wind is blowing dogs are barking there's a part of me that had to know very quickly that that noise that crack of that limb breaking off was real important right now and I just reacted And there was no cognition that went into that because cognitive processing is not fast enough for that. Limbic processing is operating like 300 milliseconds ahead of cognitive processing. So when you think about counseling issues like anger management, anger is the default human response to stress. Toddlers get angry and they do it great. You don't have to teach them how to do it. But you've never decided to be angry. You've always just realized it happened after it happened because it happens at a limbic level. So a cognitive process would be the stressor happens, the anger happens, and then we talk about it and we give you some techniques to manage it so that the next time the anger happens, you can try to manage it better. That's not a bad approach. The approach here is entirely different. We want to work at a limbic system level so the next time the stressor happens, your creativity kicks in. You just handle the situation in a way that's better. I don't know how it's going to be better, mm-hmm. but there's the creative part of you that handles it better. And then, so the anger doesn't happen, so we don't have to manage it. So that's cool. And by the way, the original stressor got handled better, so that's better anyway, and so it's all better. So so that's how the process here really functions, to work at that limbic level so you're just responding differently, so you're not having to manage problems. When you're talking, Harper, about wrestling, anything that's athletic, it's happening too fast, for cognition and when you're talking about losing track of what was happening during the the match it's because it's happening too fast for cognition your opponents doing stuff you're doing stuff you're reacting you're moving you're making your moves Mm -hmm. he's doing the same thing you're back and forth with each other it's just pop 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 you can't you can't think quickly enough to do that and so it has to be that limbic function and Mm -hmm. so when you're going into a match and your limbic system is going. Whoa! I don't know about this guy. That looks right. real, real tough. Then, then the part of you that would be having to get in there and take care of business and get it done is going. Whoa! Wait a minute. I'm not so sure about this. Uh, right. And so it becomes very difficult to manage cognitively. Does okay. that make sense? It it, it, it
0: makes sense. Um, and that I guess that's where um, like having muscle memory is important um i guess i mean that that's what they call it i don't know if there's an actual explanation it's for called that.
1: muscle memory but it really is your limbic system that has all that stuff in place limbic works off of habit you're driving down the freeway um someone swerves into your lane immediately you do like five different things to keep from having a wreck you check your mirror pump your brakes with jiggle the wheel it's why new day drivers are so dangerous because you have been driving for a while and so someone swerves into your lane you've got all these little habits in place of how to drive that that there's no time to think about it cognitively. It's your limbic system reacting using habit pattern. And so a new driver, the someone swears in their lane, they have to try to think about what to do. Neocortex mm-hmm. processing is just too slow. Mm-hmm. And so that's the problem. That reactivity level is what we're working with with the hypnosis process is working at that that limbic system level. Athletics is the perfect example. I mean a golf swing is a hugely complicated motion where you have to twist a lot of different ways, and it's very, very fast. And it's too fast to think of consciously. Like, you can't manage your swing consciously. It has to be the kind of thing that's muscle memory, it's that limbic system functioning It's in place. You're playing basketball, driving down the court, you know, heading for the, heading for the goal. Um, You dodge around one guy, you dodge around another guy, you jump up, you you shoot the shot, you hit the hoop. You can't think quickly enough to do that. It's not possible. And so the figure skater that's out doing the things where she's, you know, doing the, um, the triple axles and stuff, that stuff is happening super fast. Cognition won't handle it. It's got to be limbic system muscle memory in place. But that's also the way you're handling things like, you know, depressive and anxiety disorders and stuff. It's all that limbic processing.
0: Mm-hmm. So that ultimately fails when that you, you mentioned the, the girl that was skating that you could tell that she was going to fall. So that that fails when her brain is telling her. That she's not confident in that, even though she's done it a thousand, ten thousand times?
1: I was looking at her face, and I was sure I would have put money on that she was going to fall. I just saw her face, and you could tell, like, emotionally, it just was not there.
0: Why is that stronger to to control, like, the, the emotion of, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to, this guy is stronger than me. He's going to win, even though... I may have better technique, even though you can be a better wrestler or a better competitor, whatever it is. If you don't believe in yourself, it's you're gonna you're not gonna perform to that
1: level. If if you don't believe in yourself at that moment, it's the story you're telling yourself at that moment, and it's stronger because it is the part of you that is in charge of your survival and keeping you safe. This is the part of the brain that really is running fight or flight, anxiety. Um, survival responses, and, and it is hugely powerful. And cognition, we tend to think of cognition, that executive function, like conscious awareness, of a little voice in your head that's you. We tend to think of that as me, like I am my executive function, but there's much more going on in your brain than that. And that limbic processing, that emotional processing, if you want to use traditional language, that subconscious or unconscious processing versus cognition or conscious processing, it, that, that subconscious processing, that emotional processing is just much more powerful. It's just running the show all the time you when you're asleep. Again, we think of cognition as me, but cognition goes away when you go to sleep. That limbic processing is always there awake asleep all the time, keeping you safe. We're talking to each other. You're focused on me. I'm focused on you and what you're saying. If a mouse ran out over there, we would both immediately see it because your limbic is keeping up with peripheral vision, smells in the room, um, feel your shoes, everything that's going on constantly. You can't process that cognitively. It's just too much information. There was a 2019 study that... um, Looked at the high that you get from LSD, which dropping acid is always a bad idea. Um, <laughs> of course, but basically, it looks like that what the high with LSD is is you're just kind of jamming the thalamus open, which is a brain structure, and you're flooding your neocortex with all that limbic um, sensory experience, and it just is impossible. Like your neocortex is not fast enough or vast enough to handle that information. Fortunately, you know it doesn't get stuck that way because that'd be hell yeah and so yeah
0: very cool um well going back to um my whole wrestling process is that fast forwarding to this past season um i ended up performing really well at at one of the last tournaments um congratulations it was thank you Uh, um my parents were there and uh grandparents and it was it was a great time and I knew that I was going to perform well because I was excited to be there and I think that's that's what changed everything is that I uh, there was a very very small part of me that would still see oh this person seems pretty you know they look a little fast or you know they look pretty strong but that didn't over that didn't overwhelm me to the point where I just gave up on myself. I I was excited to be there, and I knew it was the last tournament. And I knew my family had traveled up, but I was just excited to wrestle. And I I think that's why um, I performed really well. Is that um, I was I just I was excited to 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 wrestle, and I wasn't thinking about it like oh I have to win. I wasn't thinking about it as win or lose. I was thinking about how can I just wrestle the best and come off that even uh, come off the mat even if I do lose. What are some things that I did well? And it would end up, all right, I won. And I also, there are reasons that I won. I I, I was in great position here and um, I attacked when I needed to. So I think it was, I think it's interesting that when I had the issues in high school, um, it was just a, a matter of, oh, I don't believe myself. I'm going to, I didn't necessarily say I'm going to lose, but it was very, um, indirect response to seeing someone else and then this past year um i don't know if it was just the level of competition that i've I've been used to wrestling really good wrestlers all year and i knew that it was going to be a hard tournament but it was just the fact that i was excited to be there and i wanted to just compete at the best i could at my sport that i love that
1: excitement is that limbic system response that emotional engagement you're talking about like just you know, my thing with athletes is to help you perform at the level of your personal best, right? That's that's the goal, mm-hmm. to be more consistently performing at the level of your personal best. As you're telling the story, I'm remembering an episode of Man vs. Wild from years ago, and I always kind of liked that show. I know there was apparently some chicanery with it behind the scenes or whatever, but um, there's a scene where, like, they've dropped the guy, like, Bear Grylls or whatever his name is. He's mm-hmm. out in the middle of the desert somewhere, and it's, you know, the, sh- the stick is that he's supposed to, like, you know, survive and make his way through this thing. Never mind that there's a camera crew along with him um, and all that. But there's a there's a scene where he's out in the desert and there's like huge like rattlesnake shows up, and he looks at the rattlesnake and he basically says, "Well, there's dinner." and and I loved that. I was like, you know, if I if I see like a, you know, like a seven foot rattlesnake and I'm out in the middle of the desert and like all I've got is maybe a rock and a pocket knife. I'm not looking at the snake going, well, there there's a solution to a problem right there. Dinner has just shown up. Right. Like, whoa, that is a big old snake. Yeah. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to get out of here. But he was like going to eat the thing. And he did. Like he just killed the snake and cooked it and ate it for dinner. And I'm like, well, there you go. And it's <laughs> a completely different story about what's going to happen. You know, with the snake, and it's that that level of confidence. So you're going in, and you're looking at this guy, and you're like, you know, I've been wrestling really well. I got this. I'm going. I'm going to get this done. Like I, I got this. I got this. And you just feel it at a core gut level. I'm really sure that if I had seen your face on TV before the match, that I would not be thinking, "Well, he's not confident right now." Like <laughs> well, okay, I'd be, I'd be looking at your face, going, hey, "Okay, the guy is on it." Yeah. And, and there you go.
0: Um, yeah. And it, it's when I think back to some of my best matches, um, I don't even remember during the match. I remember before. Um, and I always tell my dad this, my, my junior year, um, I won state and it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was the year that um, you helped me and. I remember right before I went out my mind just went blank. I had I had nerves all all day because um there was a whole lead up to the the state finals and um you know you, you go in order of weight class and I was about middle there about uh, I don't even know there's 13 weights and I think I was number 7 or 6 or something like that and right. um there's it it feels forever when you're waiting for um your turn, but I just remember having the the butterflies and the nerves and then about a match before everything just kind of went blank. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't really nervous. I wasn't really confident. I just was like, all right, let's, it's time to get this done. And I went out and, um, I ended up winning like 11 to to five, but it was the, the kid I wrestled had beaten me during the regular season, uh, pretty handedly. And I'd been training for it all year. Um, and I think at that point I wasn't, I was just tired of having the the thoughts in my head of how's this going to go? How's it just go do it? And, um, it was when I, when I look back to like a lot of matches, that's how it usually was. I don't remember doing the match. It was just kind of blank. Um, I remember before and after.
1: Well, you're getting into that, that state. And so it really is that limbic processing is taking over cognitive processing is kind of getting out of the way. Um, we talked about, um, I gave you a neurological definition of hypnosis earlier, where you've got the, the frontal lobe shut down. Another way to look at it is brainwave cycle. As you relax, your brainwave cycle goes down. This is what an EEG measures. And so, full awake and consciousness, like you're doing math or something, is like uh, 20 cycles a second. Um, if you're kicked back, you're doing something you really enjoy. You lose track of time. That's like 14 cycles a second or less. Um, You're watching TV late at night, zoning in and out, hearing a little of the TV, thinking about something else. Hear the TV, thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. One of your parents walks through the room, thinks you're asleep, but you know you're really not asleep. That's nine cycles or less. Hypnosis is taking place at about five, six cycles, and then four cycles or less is true deep sleep where you dream. Um, And then it goes down to about 1.5. And of course, no brainwave cycle is dead, um, but I'm not quite that boring. When you're talking about athletics, though, it really is taking place in that 9 to 14 range. Hmm. Like, you're not exactly relaxed in that state, but but that's happening. Everything is like, you're, that's, athletes talk about being in the zone. Right. That's being in the zone. That's that mental being in the zone. And if you're trying to be in your head, which is like that 20 cycles a second thing, like, that's not going to work. You're trying to manage things cognitively that are not, that are just too fast, too engaged, too much muscle memory needs to be in place. So, that 14 cycles a second or less thing is what does it. The other thing with the story is emotions drive behavior, stories frame emotion and create meaning. So, think about like the butterflies in the stomach and stuff. And what is that? Well, that's adrenaline. Your body really only has one way to go up and to go down. Up is faster brainwave cycle more rapid, shallower breathing, um, uh, faster heartbeat, adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones up. Down, relaxation response is just basically the opposite. Um, slower brainwave cycle, slower heartbeat, slower, deeper breathing, feel-good, happy hormones like beta endorphins and serotonin. So there's not a different up for athletics versus, you know, just up, you know, doing things or... You know a different down for like meditation versus sleep versus hypnosis versus you know chilling out reading my book like your body has ways to go up and down so if i walked out into the lobby and there was a tiger that would be life or death fight or flight Mm -hmm. everything's up if i was on top of a roller coaster about to drop down a hill um, my body would do basically the same thing i would not see that as a life or death problem um, I would see it as thrilling and exciting. If I walked out in the lobby and um, there was the most attractive woman that I can imagine, my body's going to do basically the same thing. Definitely would not see that one as a life or death threat. All right. So, what is the difference between the tiger, the roller coaster, and the attractive person? It's not my body response. It's that the, they all have very different stories. The story of the tiger, the story of the roller coaster, the story of the attractive person are really different. When I go to speak, and I, I do a lot of public speaking, and sometimes very large groups, when I go to give a big address, um, I always feel adrenaline beforehand, like I can feel, like, like, I guess you could call it butterflies, I never really think of it that way, but I feel that adrenaline in my body. And I think of that as, yes, I'm gonna get this done, I'm gonna connect with my audience, it's gonna be awesome. If I if I experienced that and went, oh my God, how am I gonna do this, like that would go badly. Huh. But it's not physiologically different. And so what you're feeling when you're going into the match and you've got, like, the nervousness and the butterflies and stuff, it's your limbic system trying to help you. It's your body ramping up. You're getting all this adrenaline. And then you're having to wait, which is not great because adrenaline is about right now I need to do something. And so, you know, but you're in there and you, you're feeling that engaging. You. And then when you went into the match, like, you, you end up taking all that and you use it in order to to triumph. Absolutely. Right. Right. And so that's your body gearing up for stuff does yeah. that make sense
0: yeah it um absolutely makes sense and it's just I think the difficulty is turning I guess in my case and a lot of other people that I know is is, is using that um, and telling yourself that it's 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 for uh, a, a more positive outcome like you said you you're you're excited to engage with your audiences rather than using your adrenaline to be nervous.
1: Um, It has to be the story that you're telling yourself. Story is different from information. Everyone with a fear of flying knows that they're actually safer on a plane than in the car going to the airport by a long shot. But that has cured like zero cases of flying phobia ever because like information doesn't matter. I can tell you all day long, you know, really you're safer on the plane and you're just not feeling it there has to be a different story about what's going to happen there your story about what was going to happen with your opponent was different in the uh and congratulations on the victory but in the in that championship round than it was earlier in the season now it could be that you just had a guy that you know you could have someone that just maybe out-trained you or maybe just had a better day or whatever so you know athletics is athletics and you could end up losing a match right but I think that the the key to this, from what you're describing, is that your mindset was just in a totally different place going into the championship match than it was in the earlier one, and so all of that story about this was completely different. It was, you know, I'm going to eat the snake, like that's dinner right there. I'm just going to go get this done, and that that belief, that story component, it's powerful and it drives the behavior and it's what drives you forward, and it you know, the, for whatever reason, the figure skater at that moment was not believing that.
0: Makes sense. Um, I know we're, we're, we're a little short on time. I just wanted to kind of wrap up. Um, I wanted to know what the most rewarding aspects of your work as a hypnotherapist are. Um, I guess what keeps you motivated, um, and is exciting for you to continue this. Um, and, what what about it is so um enjoyable um and really interesting to you
1: there are people who are not dead because i've worked with them there are people who are not dead because i've worked with them i know that there are people whose lives have been totally turned around they're the ones that make the turnaround i'm just a, the facilitator but um there are people that come in with their lives just in havoc and wrecked i treat very serious um trauma and anxiety and unipolar depressive disorders. I'm a clinical mental health counselor. And there are people that come in with just hell and devastation in their lives. And and they get better. And, you know, I mean, nothing's 100%. Um, m- my clients typically get much, much better. And I just absolutely love that. And that is the part that makes it totally worthwhile, is that this person comes in with just just hell and devastation and by the time we're done you know 12 weeks or so later things are just phenomenally better
0: um i i can honestly i luckily i can say that i i was never in that um sort of state of hell and devastation but with working with you um just definitely turn it around i've recommended to you to a lot of uh, my friends, I've, um, it's just been something that I've, I look back on and thought it was not only just a really helpful experience, but it was just really interesting to sit, step outside my comfort zone, but also learn about this. And that. that's why I wanted to set up this um, episode, because listening to you talk about um, the whole process, but also break it down into the science. Um, it was really interesting.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. And um... I'm glad it was great for you. And yeah, I know what we were working with was not like the kind of issues I just described. I love working with athletes and it's very satisfying to see someone excel in their sport. Um, So yeah, but thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, doctor.